It's July 13, 2016. Welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. After a little, probably inevitable, Pokemon Go talk, we'll get into the local tech calendar for the week. Cindy Matsuki from the High Tech Development Corporation is here to tell us about the upcoming Tech Hire Code Sprint. Then Bernice Glenn is here to fill us in on the Asia-Pacific Resilience Innovation Summit and Expo, or a prize. And finally, of course, after the break, we'll check in with an ambitious IT transformation project. Uh, we'll, we'll have uh, Todd Nakapoi, CIO with the State of Hawaii, and Gary Yoshimi, the CIO of the University of Hawaii, and they will both be joining us. What does it take to modernize large IT systems and infrastructure? We, of course, welcome your comments and questions as part of the conversation as well. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet. After the break. Well, you know, last Wednesday we had our show, and then Thursday morning I wake up and all these uh, Pokemon, ref- <laughs> you know, uh, sort of references coming up on Snapchat. I'm thinking, what's going on with Pokemon? And th- since Thursday, it was, it's been like this incredible spike. I think we're also in now the range of the backlash, people who just are sick of hearing about Pokemon. Okay. So for those people, we certainly apologize. But it is a legitimate phenomenon, at least for this week. I mean, it surpassed Twitter in the number of uh, daily active users, more downloads than Tinder, more engagement than Facebook. It is big. It's the top of the App Store charts. And what I really liked was it was a it's kind of built upon the framework of an earlier game by the same company, Niantic, which started as a Google sort of internal startup, and that game was called Ingress. It was a lot darker. It was a lot more militaristic and a lot more complex. So I like that they kind of took the idea of getting people out and about, visiting locations to play. But come on, it's cute. It's got Pokemon kind of reliving the 90s nostalgia. No, definitely got the cute characters. And the thing that I really was uh, enamored by was the fact that it did pull from that database that was resulted from the crowdsourcing that uh, everybody was out there collecting the uh, sort of like portals for Ingress. Right, absolutely. So you might wonder, how did they know about that mural on the wall in Zippies? How did they know about that, that stone in the parking lot of City Mill? It's because Ingress players were... In that game, we're going around trying to discover interesting locations, not things that you can look up on well, Wikipedia. Okay, the first thing I wanted to do when I came to the station today was try to find the, uh, let's say, the <laughs> landmark for Hawaii Public Radio. What happened to that? Where, where, there's got to be one in Ingress. So not every Ingress portal became a Pokestop in uh, Pokemon Go, and not all these Pokestops are great. Some of them are cemeteries where you probably shouldn't play. Mm-hmm. The uh, Holocaust Museum said, please don't come here to play Pokemon Go. So they're still going to be working on that, but... Obviously, and they have announced that their intention is to embrace businesses who want their businesses to become Pokestops locations. And, you know, obviously that's an advertising venue there. So a pretty, pretty fun game. Um, and uh, But it is important to talk about, you know, being careful when you play. Well, definitely. I mean, you don't want to be playing inside your company while you're working because <laughs> I've, I've seen signs uh, popping up on Snapchat saying, if you continue to play Pokemon inside the company, then you wait, you will probably have a lot of time to when play unemployed, unemployed outside the company. <laughs> That's true. You should play in groups. Uh, what I've noticed in Mililani certainly is just driving around, passing the library. There's like a dozen kids camped out on the front lawn. Unfortunately, it's true that libraries aren't open overnight. Parks are not open overnight. So be conscious of private property, of neighbors and things like that. But again, I personally feel that, and even with Ingress, a game that encourages people to explore their neighbor, to walk around a neighborhood is a good thing. And, it, and just by adding foot traffic, by adding people in 
on foot in a neighborhood kind of raises that neighborhood's energy level. People connect with each other more. I've had random conversations that I'm walking past. I'm like, hey, that's Pokemon, right? So as long as you don't start fights with people, I think it's a good way to get to know your And, and Pokemon Go definitely is a walking game, and you shouldn't be driving and definitely playing not. Pokemon Go. So don't, don't drive and play Pokemon Go. Just walk and have fun and you know get a little bit of the outdoors. What do you think is going to be next? I mean, what's the next big thing now that this has clearly taken over the world? Well, you mean in terms of upgrades to Pokemon Go? Well, yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, they've got to uh, start doing the trading, right? Because if you start getting all these Pokemon characters and then you have one that I want, I might want to trade. Right, like the card game. They should mm-hmm. be doing that. So that's probably going to be something. And, you know, if they start to actually have businesses uh, participate and they might have specials associated with those businesses. Which is already result, happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's going to start to get people, you know, into into businesses. So that would be kind of an interesting thing. Now, you had mentioned this morning uh, on the Geek Beat that you thought that there's an opportunity here for even Snapchat to get in on the game. Well, Snapchat's already been doing augmented reality, right, with the uh, face filters. And oh, they also have geolocation-based yeah, filters. Yeah, and then they, they also do a little bit of, uh, uh, let's say, um, AR with some of their little stickers, and they, you can actually make those stickers move along with the, the video that you do. So maybe they might include some some actually 3D, uh, maybe geospecific kinds of, let's say, augmented reality and, and characters that might pop into your screen. Yeah, people I don't know, do visit locations to try to get that location filter, so I can see that getting people out and about. But this is sort of the great coming out, finally, of augmented reality games, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, definitely got the uh, popular uh, interest. So we'll, we'll check that out and report back on how it's progressing. Level 7. Yeah, right. Oh, you... Team-mystic. Oh, oh, i got to get out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, well, we've got to invite, I mean, we've got to welcome uh, Cindy Matsuki from the High Tech Development Corporation. She's a, a regular here, and, of course, she is here to tell us about something called the Tech Hire Code Sprint. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Tech Hire, we heard about, it's a federal initiative that's coming down to encourage the the states to look at getting employees or, or, or p- people who are looking for jobs to get placed in tech jobs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. tech hire is part of that, That I mean, is, is that initiative. How is HTDC kind of getting involved? And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about that this uh, code sprint. So HTDC is bringing together employers, the workforce development organizations, as well as the trainers who do, do accelerated training. So people like DevLead mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. PCAT. So the shorter versions that get people hireable mm-hmm. and ready to start. Um, and Code Sprint is a win-win for people looking for jobs as well as employers. So it's for individuals to apply. It's kind of like a hackathon, but basically they give you the code challenge. And so people that are looking for jobs that have been through accelerator programs can apply. So that I don't think they're technically looking for people with degrees. So this is for this specific group of people. And it's only happening in tech hire hubs. So Hawaii, since Hawaii is one, we're hosting one. So the actual code sprint, is it something that just takes place online? Mm-hmm. It's going to be an online event, and it starts next week, Saturday, at mm-hmm. 3 a.m. Hawaii time. Because well, okay. it's like 3 a.m. Okay. 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Better set your alarm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll have 48 hours to complete as many of the eight challenges that they put up. And then Hacker Rank, who is hosting this event, is going to rank your solutions your code solutions and basically they'll rank all the software devs 
and mm-hmm. send these lists to interested employers. Well, that's interesting. So on one hand, I'm excited that Hawaii is one of these designated locations, a tech hire location, but it is a national event, and we don't get any special consideration being this far west of the East Coast. Yeah. So on the other hand, we're sort of we're tef- definitely in there at the same time these other organizations are. We're, in effect, competing, it sounds like, with other locations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> well, you know, those uh, developers, they don't sleep anyway, right? So 3 o'clock, whether it's 3 o'clock or 9 o'clock, I mean... They're probably, but the the curious thing about it is that usually in a hackathon you would perhaps form a team, mm-hmm. but is this team um, oriented or is it more individual oriented? It's for individuals because I think the goal is to get hired, and so basically they're looking for individual skills mm-hmm. in programming, and so as an individual you complete the challenges mm-hmm. that they're they put up on this site. So does that mean on the hiring side, the people Mm -hmm. that will hopefully benefit from being able to get the best coders that were able to, in this code sprint, come up with the best solution to a a surprise challenge, Mm -hmm. um, are those local employers as well as national employers that are really recruiting across the country? Mm -hmm. Well, I believe they're keeping it local so that the local people that apply will be looked at by local employers because that's the goal, right, to keep the tech hire hubs regional. So from a national standpoint, how are they getting the the local employers that are interested in hiring? Are you know is the uh, high tech development corporation kind of involved with pointing to the right employers? How do the Fed guys know of the local job market? So it is more of a local event. It's not necessarily a national event. So HTDC is the one who is inviting local employers who have already been involved with the Tech Hire program. Okay, so you are already inviting local employers, so you you know who that pool of local employers are. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. once you participate in the Code Hire mm-hmm. uh, Code Sprint as an individual, then you can do, HTDC can help do the matchup. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. great. Well, the company I work for, we very recently specifically picked up someone who came out of the Dev League coding nice. boot camp because we were looking for that. So this looks like a good opportunity, too. Is is that pool of potential employers, people who are looking for the, the best local coders still open? Is it possible for a business owner right now looking for a coder to jump in to the pool that you're working with for this code sprint? It is. It is. They're, they're open till the 20th. So you are able to apply as an employer. And it's great because there's no commitments on the employer side. You just sign up, you put in some information, and at the end of the event, they'll send you a list. And Very then good. you can just look through it. And just whoever can call that or contact that uh, developer first and, and get that first interview. Exactly. Very good. So details, where can people go to find out more about uh, this uh, code sprint? So if you're an employer and you want to sign up to get that list of coders, you go to techhire.org slash codesprint. And if you want to participate, and if you're looking for a job, you can sign up at hackerrank.com slash techhire hyphen codesprint. And within, I guess that's sort of a centralized collecting place, and within that point, you would select that you were part of the Hawaii Tech Hire Hub. Mm -hmm. I believe when you fill out the form. Got it, got Mm -hmm. it. Very good. Well, thanks, Cindy, for joining us. Mm -hmm. And of course, next up, uh, we have our longtime friend, Bernice Glenn, and she's from the kind of the dual-use community, the DOD sort of commercialization community, and she's here to tell us about something called a prize 2016. That's correct. What Thanks is so much a prize? What does that stand for? Yeah, you know, that's the Asia Pacific Resilience Innovation Summit and Expo, and the two key words are uh, resilience, innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
what we're looking at are um, programs that really address um, resiliency from man-made and natural disasters um, that are both important to the defense community and to the um, uh, public community. Mm -hmm. Now, you are doing this in conjunction with RIMPAC, which is happening uh, here in Hawaii. So I take it that uh, it, it'll be attended by sort of an international audience? Yes. Um, so the Asia-Pacific component of it is actually more Indo-Asia than it is Asia-Pacific mm-hmm, this, in mm-hmm, this round mm-hmm. because the area that uh, PACOM, the Pacific Command, is very much focused on right now in terms of sustainability and resilience against, again, both man-made and natural disasters is the Indo-Asia region. So we have a session, for example, on disaster management specifically, and it will focus quite a bit on Nepal. Um, which has just suffered through, you know, massive earthquake and and post-disaster uh, recovery struggles. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the area that especially Department of Defense is interested in, is the ability of communities like that to bounce back from a social, economic, and even educational perspective. So, Bert mentioned dual use, certainly the uh, development of technologies that assist in military operations, but that can also find a second life in the commercial space. Um, so for this summit, I imagine it is going to be kind of focused on the potential for public-private partnerships between military um, operations and interests and things that they want to see built and what the private sector is able to come up with. Exactly, exactly. And what we call it is um, whole society supported initiatives. So whole society meaning inclusive of the military uh, foundations, communities in general. And uh, again, in this case, we're looking at critical infrastructure, in particular energy security. Now, now, Bernice, how did you get involved with this uh, interesting conference? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I know you've been involved with a number of different sort of uh, um, events, and you're heavily involved with APEC that, that happened several years ago and have, have always been involved with sort of this dual-use community. Yeah. So how did they, they get you involved with this? This is uh, really kind of a, a great swan song for me mm-hmm. because um, I started in um, Hawaii in economic development, and my first project really focused on uh, setting up um, what is now the National uh, Disaster Training Center. Um, and the uh, whole focus at that time was to look at the U.S. and Korea uh, military and um, civilian um, recovery systems um, in terms of natural disasters and man-made disasters. And mm-hmm. this was... Um, back in maybe about 25 years ago, uh, 20-some years ago. And um, so my um, background had been in economic development, but really focused on dual-use technology um, with a very strong um, emphasis on disaster mitigation and disaster management. Mm -hmm. And I had just joined the National Security Technology Accelerator, which is a um, somewhat of a misnomer because it's not an accelerator in the sense of an incubator. It's an accelerator in terms of procurement capabilities of mm. the Department of Defense. And so, as you all probably are familiar with, the Department of Defense often has these very um, high standards and very rigorous um, processes in place that make it very difficult for small businesses like our, our local dual-use companies mm-hmm. to make it through the wickets of taking a technology that's at R&D level um, we call it uh, technology readiness levels, say of a six or seven, and actually deploying it in some sort of prototype in a timely manner. Oftentimes, just the weight of the contracting uh, process itself will kill a company mm-hmm. if it's um, not robust enough. Mm-hmm. And so the National Security Technology Accelerator was set up by the Department of Defense's um, uh, 
tech, uh, information centers. So DTIC is the acronym, and it was designed specifically to expedite uh, financing and funding for R&D and uh, prototyping in the energy field and energy-related field. And that's how when um, a prize uh, came about probably about seven or eight years ago, Matt Loudon with Tech Connect started this up and um, brought to Hawaii these amazing um, speakers. And the focus was very broad on um, all sorts of technology innovations and uh, was both for the uh, private sector as well as for the Department of Defense. But we, the National Security Technology Accelerator was a partner from the beginning, but we've really focused, we've pivoted actually this year to focus exclusively on defense energy technology mm. challenges and not on uh, the private sector um, because the defense energy issues are really very specific. Mm -hmm. While there is dual use and you can spin those um, uh, technologies out, they have very specific needs for forward deployed units. And especially in the Indo-Asia region, there are very critical and sometimes um, highly secure um, topics that have to be discussed that can't be in an open mm -hmm. forum. Mm -hmm. So this is more, this uh, upcoming summit is more of an open, for, open forum, I would imagine. It's uh, more of an Actually, I'm glad that you brought that up. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very narrowly focused forum that is very specific to defense energy technology challenges. And so it differs completely from an open forum where you're looking at all sorts of technologies that could be used by the private sector as well as the public sector. This is very specific to, um, to the defense uh, uh, needs and concerns, which is why it was designed to fall uh, during RIMPAC. So who who do you uh, who would you like to see as participants in this in this uh, summit? Um, well, what we have are um, participants who come from the Pacific Command itself and mm -hmm. from all of the um, uh, services here, um, the science and technology advisors. We'd love to have companies who are interested in specifically um, areas of technology and have technology that they feel could provide solutions, especially to critical infrastructure. Um, and again, keeping in mind places like Nepal, Indonesia, the Philippines, where there is an element of um, not just pressure from the immediate man-made or natural disaster that they have to respond to, but there's also pressure from organizations like ISIL and, um, you know, where if there is unrest, um, they would take advantage of mm -hmm, it. So mm -hmm. those kinds of tech companies that have solutions that could address energy security, for example, um, biofuels is another one, um, and, and uh, um, really who are interested in the defense market. I mean, it almost makes me wonder, like, for example, the Energy Accelerator, a local accelerator program focused on energy solutions and solving big problems, that would probably be one area to look or to... to um, actually, they're uh, in a completely different sector ah, okay. from us. And um, so they're a, a traditional incubator, um, and the um, the companies that come out of them are great companies. Um, some of them may be um, candidates for this group. Uh, actually, with this um, targeted area, however, uh, most of those companies have already been um, seen by the Department of Defense. So they're really trying to pull in... Um, um, other firms that may have not come through an incubator that may be developing um, a series of uh, interesting novel solutions oh, like um, they're 
companies, for example, you guys all know um, uh, Mackay Engineering, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Oceanet, uh, the, the types of companies that can quickly churn out a number of different highly novel solutions depending on the environment. And uh, not that the others can't, but um, the pace at which they I would see. want to deploy these prototypes is pretty fast. Great. All right. So, Bernice, where can somebody go to find out more information? Thank you. I'm so glad that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned, um, resilience and summit are kind of the two keywords. So, um, there is a website, and it's called resiliencesummit.com. Very good. Easy. We'll put that up on our show notes later on tonight. Thank Thanks, uh, Bernice, for joining us. Thank you. It's good so wonderful to, to see you guys again. And, of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Todd Nakapoi and Garrett Yoshimi to talk about IT modernization. How do you manage IT projects at such a large scale with so many moving parts? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as a part of that conversation, so you can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions as well at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Bring your friends and ohana to HPR's annual fundraiser at the Paliku Theater on August 7th. This year featuring a world premiere double bill with Kuana Torres Kahele and enjoy a group discount. Find out more about this limited offer at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. And please plan on joining us between shows for a mini luau, lay-making demonstration, and good conversation. And make your group reservation today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Stephen Dynan, author of Sacred America, Sacred World. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how our country can fulfill its higher mission. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Todd Nakapoi and Garrett Yoshimi. Todd is the CIO, that's Chief Information Officer or Chief Innovation Officer, depending on what day you want to talk to Todd <laughs> for the state of Hawaii. And, of course, uh, he took on this monumental task just a little over a year ago. Garrett, meanwhile, is the CIO of the University of Hawaii and works closely with state government to leverage its their synergies. Of course, and, uh, these two CIOs can uh, combine efforts to drive IT modernization and, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments uh, about that topic. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or... 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank, Thank you very you. much. So let's start off, uh, maybe Todd, you know, give us a sense of, you know, what is that monumental task? I mean, we've all heard for many, many years how there are, you know, these antiquated systems and it's not just simply buying a new one and flipping a switch and now you got a IT modern system. And what is the task at hand that you have to face? So really, when Governor asked me to take this position, um, he asked me to basically modernize the entire state. Right. Right. And that's, like you said, it is a monumental task. And 
really what that means is trying to drive innovation within state agencies. And so that's why I would say the first act of civil, civil disobedience I did was retitle myself to chief innovation officer, right? Because my goal is, is really to allow state employees to be innovative. Right. So we've taken a very different approach. And that's really the change that's happening in the CIO role is we're getting away from managing information to really creating an innovative environment for our employees so that they're they can come up with the answers. Because, you know, it's not consultants. It's not, you know, people like me that, that that come in. Right. It's the people that have been there for 10, 15, 20 years that really know and have the solutions to fix state government. They just have to have the opportunity. And so, again, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to allow those state employees to be innovative. Mm-hmm. Now, Garrett, uh, you know, in terms of your role looking at the whole IT infrastructure that uh, governs the entire UH system, I mean, that in and of itself is is monumental. But there are, there are probably a different set of challenges that you face as opposed to trying to modernize the, the, the state's IT system. Absolutely, absolutely. We have, a, we have a number of different things going on at the university. So besides kind of your, your traditional back-end IT infrastructure and operations, enterprise systems. We also have um, teaching and learning as well as research, research going on. So mm-hmm. it, makes for, um, it makes for a really cool job. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I came back to the, the university. I was there for probably six and a half years working for David Lassner mm-hmm. when he was CIO. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the position became available, it was really the attractiveness to come back to a, an institution that um, does a lot of good stuff for the state, but it also does a lot of really cool things. Um, from a scale perspective, we we have a, a fairly broad reach, and we work both with um, state and local um, collaborators as well as with our friends across the nation and across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, we've got a bunch of stuff now reaching across the Pacific as well. So um, lots of really cool things and cool opportunities. Um, m- on top of the challenges that Todd, face, Todd faces, we have exactly the similar kinds of things that we have to do for the university. We have a financial system that we have to deal with. We have personnel systems. We have um, in, in the academic environment our teaching and learning systems. So lots of the similar kinds of things we have to work with, retooling, looking for innovation, um, and really focusing on the people side. That's mm-hmm. that's key for us. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that you mentioned, you know, kind of the difficult task that was ahead for Todd. Um, we The state got its first CIO in 2011, and there was at that point the kickoff of this big ambitious project, an IT transformation project, a 1,400-page document that said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. But it became clear that there was a, that was an enormous undertaking that was practically impossible to ever implement. And it came uh, coming out of that process. It was how are we going to accomplish this, you know, in a more, I would say, incremental, in a more achievable way. So for and on this program, we did, in fact, talk about that large sort of 30 years in the making, the anecdotes about a VAC system in a basement that you had to buy parts off of eBay, a payroll system that you still had to do by pencil and paper and running around. So, um, Todd, where where do you where are we, you know, in terms of reshaping and reframing that ambitious idea, which is still an important one, something that needs to be accomplished, but with a different approach. So we've studied and before taking this job, Governor and I had a lot of conversations about the approach to do to do this monumental task. And really what Governor asked me to do was was take a modular approach. And so that's what we're calling it, right? We're taking a very modular approach to this. So when you try to uplift a monolithical system like an ERP or go after something like that, you know, it, it 
takes a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of effort to do something like that. And what we're really trying to do is break that into, again, different modular pieces. So we've taken on payroll and time and attendance. We've just issued that RFP, right? And we, we got that at a significant reduced cost because of what we're doing. So in, in plain terms, our approach is this. Um, we built basically a phone. And all of these systems are apps that are landing on this phone. So we built an IT platform, right? And all of these things like payroll, time and attendance, financial systems, these are apps that are landing on that phone. So at any time, we can replace these apps or modernize the apps as we go because we built a platform for them to land on. So now I'd like to explore that a little bit more because – you know, typically when you think of uh, a payroll system and if you were in a sort of traditional government procurement uh, environment, you would issue out an RFP and you would have a bunch of companies uh, that would respond on perhaps selling you a turnkey solution, right? What I want to know is when you talk about this sort of platform, what is it that the state provides, that, that analogy that you just drew about the phone, what is it that the state provides that, that now vendors who provide the applications could build upon that? So really it's, it's looking at specific core services, things like authentication, things like security, reporting, right? specific things that, that in these monolithic systems they charge you for, mm-hmm. right? They charge you for the secu- for creating a single sign-on piece of the app. They charge you for all of the reporting that comes off of it, right? So what we're doing is is we're leveraging other platforms that have built been built in the state, taking the best of breed, and then using that as our platform, right? So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not spending hundreds of millions of dollars on, on putting in something brand new. We've looked across the state and really looked at things like what Department of Human Services have built, Department of Health has built, really leveraging what we're calling best of breed, right? And saying, look, okay, that's going to be our platform for authentication. That's going to be our, our platform for security and and really leveraging what they've already built, building it larger for the enterprise, and then being able to leverage a lot of different sources to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that that frequently comes up, both for government and especially for the private sector, are, is the term the cloud, right? We're going to move to a completely uh, limitless, scalable uh, set of infrastructure that we can either expand or contract. We can either take a heavy load or almost no load and adapt quickly. And um, is that one sort of an example of what you are looking at, whether it's uh, a quote-unquote cloud that you've built within the state, you know, perhaps an existing system that could scale that way, or leveraging something like uh, an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft Azure? So really when we talk about cloud, it's it's such a general term that it's, it's really hard to discuss, right? Um, so what we're doing is is looking for software as a service. So things like Office 365, things like our payroll and time and attendance system, when we went out for RFP, we were looking for things, we were looking for a software as a service, right? So deliver, again, the specific application that we're looking for. But within the RFP, we're describing certain things that will be on-prem versus what's mm. being put in the cloud, right? So that we can control that piece of it. And so that's really, if you're talking about a cloud solution, we were looking for software as a service mm-hmm. instead of a platform as a service. Yeah, so in the sorry, go ahead. Oh, in the case of the payroll system, and I know there was an announcement that it, it um, you, you you had a I think it was sixteen million dollar uh, award, mm-hmm. which actually in the in the larger picture was a f- pretty good price compared to what you had 
previously gotten quoted for that system. Could, so tell me the difference between the two. I mean, you had, you had one that was much higher and one that was much more uh, affordable. And, and it's because of this sort of building upon that platform. Correct. So it's, again, when we put t- together this RFP to go out for, for this, and there's, again, there's certain things I can and cannot talk about. Um, when, when all of it is, when we get past a certain period, all of it can, is, is open for, you know, review. But, you know, really what we did is we looked at across the nation, the successful practices, the successful wins as far as payroll and time and attendance went. And then again, looking at the way that the RFP is written. For those of you that, that aren't familiar with state contracts, your RFP is actually the contract, right? There's not a lot of there's no negotiation that goes back and forth per state procurement law, right? It's this is the RFP, meet the terms of the RFP and come back. So we wrote the RFP for the first time in the favor of the state, right? We looked at everything that went into the RFP and made sure that, hey, you know, why is this, this, why are we asking for these types of requirements? If we do, it's going to cost us a lot more. Rather than an RFP that might have been co-written by a vendor. Exactly. <laughs> right? So one of the things that, 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 and I'll give you a quick example of, of what change, what could change price is like in a standard um, RFP, we had an SLA of a response time of one second end to end. But vendors can't control the entire, um, right? They, they can't control latency. They can't control the end to end, you know, response time, right? So if we say that we require a one second response time, prices are going to go up because vendors will have to build mm-hmm. local presence, additional hardware and, and things to meet that SLA requirement. Well, if we were to remove that and say, look, within your platform, you have to have a certain SLA, right? That would change the price, right? So that's just an example of things that we were looking at, right? To, to make sure it's the best benefit of the state. Mm-hmm. Garrett, you were going to say? Yeah. So one of the things that's really great about the approach that, that Todd's using now is that it really breaks it into manageable pieces. And it's, it's not only about um, leveraging platform and cost. It's also about creating um, creating an opportunity and a way to get to successful implementations because mm-hmm. that's really, t- to me and to some of us looking in from, um, from the outside at the process, that's one of the biggest differences between kind of the, um, the, some of the previous big bang theory approaches where everything has to go all at the same time and it's going to somehow magically work if you throw a gazillion dollars at mm-hmm. it to something that's really in manageable chunks that we can also work through the change processes within staffing and resources that are just as as much as important as picking the right software and solution. You have to be able to make sure that you can manage your business process change so that you can get success at the end. Mm-hmm. So that's actually one of the really great things about the approach that he's taking now that's so different from the approaches of the past. Well, Garrett, I'd like to know a little bit more about how the University of Hawaii's technology or IT system kind of works or is segregated either way from the broader state system. Like, for example, I would imagine the, the university has a supercomputer. It probably has its own set of server racks and server farms and a data center, whereas the state government would also probably have some of these components too. So how do you coordinate to make sure that you're both not buying the space shuttle when you only need one, perhaps in the entire state? Uh, we, we try to share as much as possible. And, you know, some of the some of the great things with, um, with the current kind of folks that are in charge of both the state as well as the university is there's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of spirit of collaboration that's happening um, between and among the um, among state government. University is part of state government. So, um, for example, in the in the infrastructure area, we are sharing 
um, access to facilities as well as networks to make the um, to make our operations both more efficient as well as more effective at the same time. Um, some of our systems are in fact different. Uh, we actually use the same payroll system. We're on we run as tenants on Todd's payroll system, but our financial system as well as um, personnel operations um, run a little bit different from um, from the stuff that runs for the rest of state government. So we take a very similar approach where we have uh, best of breed best of breed infrastructure that supports things like single sign on things like authentication and authorization um, for our community, um, our community which includes staff, uh, faculty, as well as students and researchers. So we're probably, I think we've got probably about 100,000 and change um, folks that we're managing on any given day. Um, but then looking at best of breed applications for financials, for HR, um, we're, we're trying to take that similar kind of modular approach um, as opposed to, again, going after a big bang thing. Now, Garrett, from an infrastructure standpoint, uh, the ITS, the brand new ITS building, which was something that uh, I think was just built maybe a couple, couple, three years ago? We moved in a couple of years ago. Right. And it's a beautiful building. It's got a great data center in it. And I would like to know the, the sort of the behind-the-scenes thought process that went uh, to ultimately have the state perhaps co-locate servers in that beautiful data center? Because it seems like a very logical thing to do. It, it, uh, I, I would guess that the timing was because you had to have the ITS building built, but um, it's a, it's a first-time demonstration to me that there's an actual partnership going on between UH and the state in the form of co-location. So there's actually a bunch of partnerships going on, and that um, the, our hosting of the state's DR facilities is actually just one um, kind of visible portion of that. Um, we've been um, collaborating on networks and other infrastructure for a long time now, mm -hmm, both mm -hmm. radio as well as fiber networks. And that's been going on for probably, and i got to say probably 20 years. Um, a lot of it's behind the scenes. A lot of it's stuff that nobody sees. But the, the great thing is our engineers have been working together for a very long period of time to do stuff like before we had a lot of fiber services, share microwave radio paths mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. microwave radio sites. So that goes back literally 20-plus years mm -hmm. um, where once we've had um, fiber services available – um, and you talk most, about broadband and right. you know, high-speed connections. So those have been shared for a bunch of years yeah. as well, dating back to the early 2000s. With the, um, well, David was very. I mean, David Lasner was very instrumental in doing yeah, all yeah. that. So we're yeah. super lucky on that. And and you mentioned David Lasner. So um, as he's probably worked for, I'd say, upwards of 20 years to get the whole IT building concept put together funded and actually constructed one of the there's there were a couple of primary motivations behind that one was to bring all of the IT folks within the university into a single physical location to not only support better um, a better working environment, but also to get them to collaborate more closely together as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, IT folks um, hide behind a desk, uh, nose in your phone, nose in your laptop. Um, this was all about uh, having kind of um, conversations and and meeting places available on a on a regular basis, mm. and having all of those folks in the same physical building um, to support that kind of stuff. At the same time, creating a data center that was a Class A data center that um, took us out of the bowels of Kelly right. Hall, mm -hmm. out of, or out of a basement, mm -hmm. yeah, literally out of a basement, fifteen feet from the Halloween Eve flood. For those of you that remember that mm -hmm. flood, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was I was slugging through the mud praying that the mud didn't get all the way into the data center proper, which it didn't. We were pretty lucky. We were very lucky. Um, but that 
kind of reinforced the the need for um, a very um, a very um, strong and well built data center facility designed for that purpose, and then um, looking at where we could effectively use the resource throughout state government to make it make sense in terms of where we locate stuff. You know, I I want to um, get Todd to talk a little bit about sort of how the the state differs in the fact that there's all these different sort of IT groups that you now have to sort of bring together. So we want to talk talk about that. We'll tackle that subject. Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Todd Nakapoi and Gary Yoshimi about the benefits and challenges to modernize big IT. And if you've got big IT questions, this is the group to ask. You can call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, you can call 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. This week on Invisibilia, how one woman in an experiment came to see the world in a new way. Oh my gosh, this is so much more alive. It's so much more real. It's like black and white to color. But only for 90 minutes. Wow, is this what I've been missing? This is what life could be like. I'm Elise Spiegel. That story on the next Invisibilia from NPR. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. On the next On Being, Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh, together with a police officer. You know, as a police officer, you're so often a victim and so often an oppressor. You know, you really have to come to, to grips with both of those. Finding buoyancy and being peace in a world of conflict. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Todd Nakapoi, CIO with the state, and Garrett Yoshimi, CIO at the University of Hawaii. And, of course, you can give us a call if you have a question or comment. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, I placed a little teaser out there and you know, Todd, uh, there has been, of course, the recognition that there are a lot of IT departments within the state, and that in and of itself is is a management challenge. But there was also something else that also, I think, uh, had to kind of come together uh, during your watch, which is there was a group called OIMT, which was the organization that the, you know, the first CIO was sort of um, uh, housed in. Office of Information Management Technology. And then there was another group called ICSD, Information Computer Services Division, something like that. And there is now a, a strong attempt to, in fact, I think it was uh, uh, passed this past legislative session, to merge those two groups. Can you give us a little background? Let Help our listeners understand what really took place to warrant that merger. So really what we had was under the office of the CIO, it was created through a grant through the Media Foundation. And and you had, you know, one set of IT um, that reported to the CIO. And then you had the ICSD branch, which managed a lot of, you know, the the, the current systems within the state. And they both reported up to DAGs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had two separate budgets. You had you know two separate sets of personnel being managed. And, and there was a lot of overlap between what both organizations were doing. And both reported to the, to the CIO. 
And so, you know, really all we did was was pass our, our bill, Senate Bill 2807, to really merge the two organizations together. And again, one of the big things that we wanted to show was career paths for both people on the civil service side and what we call the exempt side. So people that were in the union and people that were outside of the union. We wanted to show that there was career paths for both. So if you wanted, you know, to to move from, you know, a being a union person and to become an exempt, which at times paid more, you know, you could do that and vice versa. People wanted the security of being part of the union. They could go that way as well. And so really emerging the two organizations together, we're trying to create a single career path for people within the state. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just broadly speaking, not just those two very large sort of umbrella type organizations, you have IT directors for every department. You have IT directors for different agencies. And I can imagine that, I mean, herding cats comes to mind. Like how can you get coordinated uh, settling on a specific solution, even a specific strategy for moving forward when each of them probably are very qualified, have their very own understanding of how their agencies work and what would be a good path forward. I mean, how do you align that? Is there a giant sort of Game of Thrones conference <laughs> room where they have to hash out, hash out in quote marks, um, which path is going to win? And so really, you know, we, we took when we looked at the way the organizations were being run and how diverse they are, right? They're, you have to view them as separate lines of business, mm-hmm. right? Each one, Department of Human Services, Transportation, they're all separate lines of businesses. And and really effective leaders and, and effective, you know, companies, they enable their people, right? They enable their organizations to be innovative, right? To find the proper solutions. And so really that's what we did. We said, look, looking across the enterprise, you know, we're going to provide certain services, what we call services-oriented infrastructure, things that all of us are doing, things like email, security, phone, telephony, right? Those types of things, things that all of us are doing. And we're going to take those commodity-type IT items, if you will, away from, you know, the individual departments because they're commodities, right? They're, it's easier to manage them centrally. What that's going to do is free up your IT staff or those departmental IT people to do the more value-added things for their organization, right? And again, you know, that's really the goal is to, they're closest to the business. They understand how to service their departments. We don't from a centrally located you know, position. We want them. They understand the business. They understand what value they can bring. And so if we can, you know, relieve some of the workload that they have from those, you know, commodity type IT items, that enables them to do the value add and be really innovative in their organization. Well, so I like how you really describe that. And that makes a lot of sense. But even email being a commodity sort Mm -hmm. of thing that you would want to have universal across the state, you know, from my early UH days, there was the terminal, there was Pine, and then the big transition was, okay, now we're on Gmail. Um, But I would imagine that you might have a competing interest between uh, Google solution for email and uh, a Microsoft solution for email. Mm-hmm. How would that affect something like Garrett at the U- at UH where you certainly, like you said, you have over a hundred and something thousand users that you're managing. Is that is it a simple matter of sort of coming into alignment with whatever solution the state chooses, chooses um, even for a commodity service? Yeah, so some of it is about alignment, um, although in this, so the, the particular, the Gmail example, um, the, it, it is also about the opportunities that we have available to us. So the, um, the so taking that specific example, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that's really interesting is for higher education institutions, Gmail and, in fact, Office 365 is free, is basically free, um, whereas for state government, it's not. So there there is some um, – we do a, we are able to take advantage of some of the things that um, – are offered to higher education institutions in general yeah, yeah. Um, that um, make 
choices a little different sometimes. I and see. we did make the, the hop to Gmail a few years ago. Now, Garrett, uh, you know, you have a, a, a very uh, interesting position as a CIO for the university because you not only have to provide sort of enterprise services to everybody on campus, but you also have to deal with this sort of learning environment. And what I want to, you know, just talk a little bit about is, you know, the, the, the role that you play in cybersecurity, I think, is very important because you want to keep, you know, sort of like the, the network uh, in for UH secure, but at the same time, you are very your people are very active in having students get involved with cybersecurity programs like Gen Cyber. I know uh, uh, Jody uh, Jody Ito is very much involved with kind of helping roll out sort of a Gen Cyber program through community colleges. So there's a there's a direct correlation between what you do as a CIO to provide services, but also what you do to provide sort of an educational environment. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting for us is, um, and and in fact, one of the things that's actually pretty compelling about this particular job is I get to um, deal with both sides of the, both the supply as well as the demand mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. of folks in the IT industry. So specifically on workforce and, and actually um, to the cybersecurity point, we're actually, uh, we we can exert quite a bit of influence in the supply chain side as well. So it's it's a really interesting position that the university has. We're one of the largest IT employers. Mm-hmm. Um, so ITS is 160 people. There are another 200 plus um, across the university. So 400 plus total. Um, the in addition to being one of the largest IT employers, we also have a significant influence on the supply chain. So we're taking advantage of that, um, and again, in particular in the cybersecurity area, to be able to help shape the um, the pathways that the university ha- makes available to its students, not only in the community colleges, but our four-year institutions and our research activities as well, to try and make sure that we help to create um, a significantly better pool of resources for employers, of which we are one. Um, so again, we're kind of playing both sides mm-hmm, of the fence mm-hmm. here, but um, to increase the the, the pool of, of potential candidates, which also makes our job and employment opportunities much better at the same time. So it is all, in fact, about economic development at the same time. So there's a lot of different um, things that this job gives me an opportunity to do, and that's actually one of the really cool things. Yeah. yeah. Now, Todd, one of the things that comes up in uh, choosing por- uh, choosing vendors, choosing platforms is, you know, you're trying to be practical. You're not be trying to be religious, but certainly there are sort of conversations that go that way. We have a Twitter question from MacPro who says, why is the state IT so enamored with Microsoft? I think Google is a better solution. Mail, calendar, apps, stocks. So um, obviously I, I got from Gareth's answer that you're going with, given the various things, cost and, you know, scalability and everything, you're going to make those conversations. Is it true that the state loves Microsoft or is it pretty much going to be um, based on the services that they provide for the cost? So one of the first things that we did institute um, when we came um, on board with with our teams where we, we stood up what's called an IT governance office, right? And really our role as in IT governance is to understand what the return on investment is for every dollar that we spend. Right. So we always we always talk about as Roy. Right. We say, hey, have you thought about Roy return on investment ROI? And anytime we look at a piece of technology, regardless of who it is. Right. It has to have the it has to have a return on investment to the state. So, yes, um, Microsoft was chosen before I came in. Right. Um, We are looking at other solutions as well. DOE is, is evaluating both between Office 365 and Google 
And so we too, and this contract for our Office 365 does come up next year, and we will go through another analysis to show. And it's really important to understand that there's a lot of different things that go on at what we call the enterprise level, right? So if you're a personal user of Office 365 or Google Docs, the things that you get from your personal account is very different right, from right. what you get from an enterprise, right? You don't get DLP, you don't get or data loss protection, you don't get single sign-on, right? You don't get a lot of these things that are part of the enterprise buy versus an individual. So, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, we just want to make sure that there's it's not as simple as what you get on a personal account. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I have to admit that I, I am uh, kind of involved with something called the. Uh, the Hawaii Annual Code Challenge, and, and this is something that's sort of brand new that I was uh, very interested in the fact that Governor Ige wanted somebody to do a code challenge, a hackathon. Now, I want to hear the story because I kind of heard a, a little bit of it from Garrett uh, over at the uh, Digital Summit. But uh, So Governor Ige went to a couple of uh, AT&T hackathons. He was very impressed by the fact that you know, in, a, in a short frame of time, you could actually get a couple of prototypes and maybe you know, do something with it. Garrett, what, what, what happened in that conversation? So there, there were a number of conversations. And you know, so at the Digital Summit, I, uh, I fessed up to, to part <laughs> of the conversation um, where you know, it, it is really cool. The, the kinds of stuff that um, the opportunities can present themselves in the hackathon format – um, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a completely finished, polished application ready to take and deploy to thousands and thousands of people. But some of the ideas that get created, the, the creative juices that flow with the students and professionals and, um, and even the people off the street to just walk in and participate, just fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I uh, encouraged him, uh, encouraged Governor uh, a little bit. Uh, maybe a lot <laughs> during some of the conversations. Yeah, that's a really good idea. We should really do this. Well, I mean, it helped that he was a judge on you know on a, in, couple, of on a yeah, couple of these yeah, hackathons. And right? I, I think he really enjoyed the outcomes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, so you you put the, the kind of the bug in the ear, and then what happened, well, Todd? What what happened? I mean, you, you guys were having lunch, <laughs> drinking beers. I don't know what what happened. And he said, "Hey, Todd, let's do a state hackathon." <laughs> so after the this this prior or this last AT and T hackathon. Right, that happened, and and I always like to thank Garrett. He's he's been a great mentor for me, and, catalyst, and <laughs> catalyst, if you will. Yes, sorry. And so, <laughs> and so um, you know, he, he came back and basically said, "Todd, you know, let's put something like this together. It's it's a great idea. It's a great opportunity for us to bring the community together and and look at outside of the box thinking." to solve state problems. And so really in the hackathon, what we're doing is we're going out to every state department and we're asking them to submit problems that they have that could be solved, specifically constituent-facing problems that mm-hmm. could be solved by some application or you know something along those lines. And that's what we're at asking for is we're, we're really going out and doing a, a month-long hackathon, not just the 24, 48 hour. It'll be a month-long hackathon for us to put that together. Mm-hmm. And actually, not just solving problems for state departments. Um, Anthony, a friend of ours, a friend of the show, just sent a press release put up by Representative Chris Lee's office, yes. and he's going to be going out to Kailua n- next Wednesday to to engage the community, the public, to see what ideas, uh, things that ways that apps, for example, tools, online tools, can help make their lives better. You know, maybe we could vote on which streets in the neighborhood should be repaved first, or to identify and help homeless communities that are setting up in their neighborhoods. So it's not just solving problems for the state, but solving problems for the community as well. Yes. Yes. 
Well, that's interesting because you know Garrett says now that you know he is uh, you know having a role to uh, provide you know some means to do sort of workforce development, you know, in, in encouraging students, getting the community involved. I mean, in a way, this is the first indication on the state side to perhaps even do something similar. I mean, it's a it's an effort to reach out to the community, get community involvement, and. You've been talking about workforce development inside state government. So is this a fertile ground for, you know, perhaps creating a environment for brainstorming and see who, you know, is most interested in some of the civic tech? Yeah. And, and, you know, really it's governor's vision is to make working for state IT the best, period. Right. He wants us, he wants our state to have the best IT workers, period. Right. And so this is a great opportunity for not only people to come and show off their talent, but for them to come and see what types of technologies we're using in the state, what we're doing in the state, because we are running some of the latest and greatest technology. We're running some of the biggest iron out there for you tech guys that know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, right? We're running, you know, engineered systems like Exadata and Exologic. So we have some of the biggest iron for you to play on. And remember, we employ 80,000 people, 65,000 seats. We have a very large network, security, all of that, right? And so again, it's a way for us to showcase you know, a lot of our technologies and, and to try to encourage people. And I'm always hiring, right? Or I'm always <laughs> looking for the best people that we can find. And so, yes, I will be looking for candidates out there as well. Well, I like that uh, the state is taking this step. As Bert knows, uh, working with the city previously, there was hackathons. That's how you got a good app for the bus, the transit system. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that Bert is assisting and cooperating with this project to really engage the local developer community and perhaps find them these professional opportunities. So, so Todd, I mean, you know, what would you try to tell a millennial who's interested in perhaps working for the government, what you might have to offer them? So that's an interesting question because all of us as as employers are trying to figure that out, right? Um, we know that we have purpose, right? As a state, as a state or civil ser- servant, there's a lot of purpose for what you do. You, you're trying to create and shape the future of Hawaii. That's number one, right? But number two, really what we're trying to do, because we know that, that here in Hawaii, it's a very expensive place to live, right? It's you know, it's it's cost of living is very high here. And what I always say is, is, look, we're creating a career path for you. It's if I just create a job for you in the state of Hawaii, right, that only gives you the ability to work here. But if I create a career path for you that enables you and gives you the ability to live here. Right. That's the difference here. Right. And really, that's attraction for a lot of our millennials that are coming to us is they they want a sense of purpose. And on top of that, they want a a career path for them where they can come in at maybe, say, the help desk or entry level IT and in 10 years become a system architect. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And Garrett, I mean, you see that being a good pipeline. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is about creating opportunities. Um, It's it's not kind of your traditional um, single path through. Uh, through employment and you work for 30 years and then you figure out how to retire or maybe over here that <laughs> yeah, you can't retire. Right, right. It is about creating choices, creating opportunities and growing market. So that's really what we're all about. We're, we're looking at both the workflow or both the workforce development side, but also looking to make sure we can expand the market here because mm-hmm. th- there are jobs available. There's, there's actually tons of jobs in this area, but it is about making sure we have the right um, talent and the right uh, capabilities to do that. Absolutely. Very good. So exciting times, and we're going to be de- definitely covering this uh, as, as uh, the months go on. 
Todd Nakapoy, State of Hawaii CIO, and Gary Yoshimi is a CIO over at the University of Hawaii. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thank Appreciate you. It. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the latest developments in commercial drone regulations. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you, have, if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And, of course, we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's the Pokemon theme. And, of course, go forth and catch them all. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.